You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 31st of January 2023 on Monocle 24. It's Brexit Day and we can't contain our jubilation either. Pope Francis drops in on two of Africa's less touristed destinations and should we all be boasting more about our professional accomplishments? I'm Andrew Muller. The British Podcast Award-nominated Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Alex von Tunzelman and Phil Clark will discuss all the day's big stories. And we hear from Samuel Hunter about the new cinematic adaptation of his play, The Whale. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Alex von Tunzelman, the historian, author, and screenwriter, and by Phil Clark, Professor of International Politics at SOAS University of London. Hello to you both. Hello. Good evening, Andrew. Um, Alex, as you are here outnumbered by Australians, we'll let you go first. This may, may be the last <laughs> thing you get to say all show, so enjoy it. Um, you have recently been attending the Jaipur Literary Festival. I have. I have. Um, the Literary Festival in India, which is uh, pretty much the greatest show on earth, um, as they bill it. Uh, a whole week of absolutely fantastic events uh, in the Rajasthan desert, Um a total bliss. I mean, you know, it's funny. I, I am seething with jealousy I'm at this sorry, point. I'm sorry, it is pretty disgusting. Well, I mean, I had to say to various other, you know, there's sort of always some young authors there who sort of are wide-eyed, unable to believe the sort of piles of free food and dancing and beautiful things that are going on. And I just say to them, you know, look, we're authors. We work alone in sad little rooms <laughs> with very low pay. This is payback. Just enjoy it. Um, among your many excellent books, though, Alex, is one considering the partition of India. How did that book go over in India? Because it is, to say the very least, a sensitive topic. Absolutely. I mean, something that I was just incredibly happy about was that, in fact, um, I've had incredibly nice responses to the book in India and in Pakistan, um, perhaps less so in Britain. <laughs> I tell you something. Um, but yes, I mean, I think uh, I still, you know, I find that... Um, Actually, there's an incredibly lively, brilliant debate there about that historically, and people are still very interested in talking about it, even though my book is now far from the most current work on the subject. But it is, and we cannot stress this enough, still available in all good stores. Absolutely. Indian Summer, published by Simon & Schuster. Outstanding. Uh, Phil, you are about to go to Kigali, but not to a literary festival, as I understand it. I'm not. I, I'm working on a book uh, that I suspect will have a readership about uh, one one millionth of Alex's. Um, <laughs> an absolute blockbuster on uh, the authoritarian welfare system of Rwanda. So uh, I'm off for another little that, field that, trip. That will leap off the shelves. For I don't, I don't, 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 be, don't, don't do yourselves down. Do you, do you, do you have a title for it? Uh, uh, Rwanda under the RPF. So this is uh, Rwanda under Kagame's party. What is what has been going on in the country in the last twenty years? Um, a country that's been in the headlines in the UK, bizarrely nonstop for the last twelve months because of the migration deal. Uh, indeed. So, but but film rights basically up for grabs. Though. Uh, absolutely. Um, people know where to find it. <laughs> Excellent. Well, first of all, on today's show proper, happy Brexit Day to all those who celebrate. It is 
is three years ago today that the United Kingdom finally left the European Union. By whimsical happenstance, it is also 50 years this month that the UK joined what was then the European Economic Community, and 10 years and 8 days since David Cameron, come on you remember, gave his Bloomberg speech explaining how a referendum on membership would sort this whole thing out once and for all. Um, Alex, how would you say it's going? <laughs> well, um, yes, all the leaders in history who promised to sort something out once and for all, have, how's that always gone? Um, your, your book about partition is still available. We could, yeah. we could talk about it again. Uh, yeah, I mean... I don't think anyone could seriously pretend it's going that brilliantly, could they? I mean, you know, we look at it and, you know, we've got the IMF saying that we're kind of, you know, the only economy that's going to contract next year, the G7 and all this kind of stuff. I mean, it, it, it is not going swimmingly. We kind of are yet to see these benefits that were promised. But of course, most of, you know, many of us didn't really believe that those were very seriously promised anyway. There was, there was an awful lot of talk mm. around the time of the referendum um, and perhaps not an awful lot of measured reality. Um, and I think that's kind of the frustrating thing um, for a lot of us going through this is the sense that, you know, it is an I told you so situation. A lot of people foresaw this. This did not take great foresight or insight or wisdom to know that this would not go very well. Um but, of course, now if you say that, you, well, we're going to get on later in the show about uh, tooting your own horn, you sound pretty smug. <laughs> so it's perhaps not a brilliant political strategy. So we're sort of stuck in this space where, um, you know, lots of people are obviously pretty unhappy with how this has gone, but there's no clear path out of that unhappiness towards uh, perhaps some progress. We will come back to that theme of possible paths out of this, but Phil, all jokes aside, it, it is common for such, you know, smug, latte-slurping, ivory-towered-dwelling, middle-class, metropolitan elitists such as the people who tend to congregate around this table uh, to, to mock and deride uh, the entire Brexit project. But all jokes aside, are you able to put your finger on like literally any benefits whatsoever, not a rhetorical question, genuinely curious. I, I, th I think the short answer is no. I, it's been remarkable listening to the ardent Brexiteers in the last six months try to list the supposed dividends and even they can't come up with it. I mean, the, the one that often gets bandied around hilariously for the company we have around this table is the UK-Australia trade deal, which as far as I can see seems to have been an exchange for penguin biscuits for Tim Tams. By the way, the Tim Tams haven't arrived yet, so that, that deal hasn't even gone through and maybe three sheep have gone in, in the other direction. So so even the people who spruiked this thing can't give us an answer uh, to that. And so it's no surprise that it seems the majority of British people, even those who were ardent Brexiteers at the time of the referendum, have gone off this idea. This is this is something that is tanking um, in, in, in public opinion, and now it falls to the politicians to do something with that tanking public opinion. Well, on the subject of public opinion, uh, a Delta poll survey commissioned by the New Statesman uh, has found that 10% of people people reckon they could name a benefit to the nation of Brexit, 5% a personal one. Um, among the benefits people named were immigration, by which I presume they meant the curtailment thereof, although that's not actually true, that hasn't happened. Um, vaccines, there's an idea that being out of the EU gave the UK a bit of room to move uh, on vaccines, which is an interesting one given what I'm pretty sure is a hefty crossover between the anti-vax and the pro-Brexit. Uh, fishing rights, again, debatable. And I'm not kidding, the abolition of best before dates on fruit and vegetables. 
Yeah, I mean, you know... If it was looking, all worth it, wasn't it? Yeah, if you're looking at a result that has 5 to 10% of public opinion, I would ask you to ask the same level of public opinion, things like, you know, are the royal family shape-shifting lizards? You know, did aliens build the pyramids? I think you'll find well, about 5 yes to 10% yes, will come in. <laughs> you know, the, these aren't big numbers, They basically. are not. <laughs> um, and, and they are ones that if you do public polls, you will find all sorts of... Uh, Opinions commanding five percent, shall we say, is 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 one way of putting it. I mean, Phil, there is all already uh, a a a motif emerging uh, on the Brexit headbanger wing, saying that, and and it is analogous to those people who excuse uh, the monstrosities of the Soviet Union and Mao's China by saying, ah, but that wasn't proper communism. We are hearing a lot of how it hasn't been done properly. This isn't proper Brexit. Is there a Brexit? Is there a version of this that could have worked actually to everybody's benefit, that could have been better than the deal the UK already had, doubtless flawed and muddled though it was? I don't think so. I, th- I think this is it. I think this is as good as it was ever going to get. You're you're talking about a post-industrial Britain that can't afford to cut itself off from Europe in the way that it has. And I remember my relatives in Belfast in the lead up to the referendum jumping and screaming and saying, no one in this debate is talking about what Brexit would mean for Northern Ireland. Indeed not. And, and that is just an unavoidable problem that Brexit had from day one, but that was completely under-recognised in the debate. And now we live with that reality. So Brexit, whichever way you configured it was never going to be able to get out of that particular mess. Um, Alex, if it is decided, if a, a solid consensus begins to emerge that this whole thing has been a dud and we probably shouldn't have done it, and it's it's imaginable that that consensus will develop if there are no tangible results and as, I, I guess, the actuarial realities catch up with the pro-Brexit vote. It was a vote largely made by older people. But And if we have a Labour government, as seems likely in two years or so, what options do they have? Because if they wanted to push towards any sort of referendum, there would have to be another referendum, and they would want to be absolutely sure about it. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of, you know, much as I personally would love to wave my magic wand and see us rejoin the EU, I feel that this is going to be a very, very lengthy process, most probably of, by bits and pieces, rebuilding a really bad version of the deal we had um, that we got rid of. So elements will come back. There are things you could do. You could, for instance, rejoin the EEA. Um, so some sort of Norway or Switzerland sort yeah, of thing. Yeah, these, these things that we talked about. But in many ways, of course, that is sort of the opposite of what Brexiteers wanted because that is absolutely being a rule taker, not a rule maker. So that's going to be politically quite difficult. I don't want to underrate that that's quite a, an awkward thing to propose in many ways. Possibly some might say the worst of all worlds. But I, I feel like there's going to be just, you know, little, like there have been on things like musicians' visas, there will be little kind of fixes and mm. deals and cobbled together things. And we'll end up with this kind of Heath Robinson, unwieldy kind of machine with all these cogs falling off it and bits and pieces. And, you know, maybe the political climate will have changed in a period of decades, probably, rather than years, to the point that somebody says, you know what, shall we just rejoin? And by the way, unfortunately, now we're going to have to have the euro and forget the rebate that that ship has sailed. (laughs) You know, so uh, I I think it's going to be a very lengthy process. I just don't see quick movement from any of the serious political leaders on this.
Okay, well, let's look now at Ukraine. Ukraine's winters are long and cold. It will be April before Kharkiv, for example, regularly enjoys above zero nights. But it is widely anticipated that warmer weather will prompt a renewed offensive by Russia. Sources in Kiev indeed expect some sort of demonstration on February 24th, which will mark one year since Russia launched its 72-hour conquest. And many onlookers are now muttering grimly about a stalemate, a situation which would probably suit Russia better than it does Ukraine or Ukraine's supporters. Um, Phil, are we at the stage, and that we are coming up for a year of this, where it is maybe suggestible that if this thing was actually winnable, somebody would have won it by now? I think so. I think certainly on the Russian side, that there seems to be a realization that that this is a quagmire. This is going to take potentially years. The death toll is going to be high. We've seen Putin have to dip into the the prison force and and segments of Russian society that he never expected he'd have to send to the front. So so there's clearly a realization in in Moscow that this is not going the way that that it was intended. But 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 on the Ukrainian side, there must also be major questions there about whether. They they can fundamentally quell the Russian threat. Every time Ukraine seems to repel that threat, uh, Russia seems to be able to push the Ukrainian forces back. And so on both sides, I think there is this increasing realisation that we we are currently in a holding pattern and there's no obvious variable that's going to change in the next few months that's going to fundamentally shift it from that. So so we're looking at a quagmire. Um, Alex, there has been a recurring theme uh, from Ukraine and quite understandably so if you're looking at this from the perspective of Ukraine's government, that the West is giving them enough not to lose, but not enough to win. Um, In the last few weeks, do you get any sense specifically about the agreement to start shifting large quantities of battle tanks to Ukraine that the West is overcoming its inhibitions on that front? Well... To an extent, (laughs) I wouldn't want to overstate that because I think there's still a huge amount of caution. And we saw that with Biden today saying he wouldn't send Mm. F-16s, for instance. You know, and then you go back a couple of weeks, of course, Macron talked about massively increasing French military spending. And he spoke specifically about the defence of Ukraine as part of that. So obviously there kind of are movements. You know, I think we're seeing France, for instance, be considerably bolder in terms of what it's doing. But the Americans are definitely still holding back a bit. And I mean, I think everybody knows the situation is very trickily balanced. I mean, if I was Zelensky, I would also be asking for loads more arms. That is the obvious thing, as you Mm. say, for him to do. Quite understandable. But you can see that the NATO leaders and, you know, all of these people want to... They are frightened of escalating this conflict. They still are, you know, which has been a huge concern all the way through. You know, we know that Russia is nuclear armed. We don't quite know the state of mind of Vladimir Putin. Uh, Not brilliant, might be a reasonable assumption. Um, And... You know, it's there is absolutely a danger of an escalation here, which I think pretty much nobody wants. That said, Phil, uh, Lithuania's president, uh, Jatanas Noseda, has said today, and the Baltic states have been notably uh, bellicose on this one for the last year, and again, for perfectly understandable reasons. Um, He's saying today that the West should abandon these red lines. He should essentially call Russia's bluff and basically make it clear we are going to throw whatever we need to throw at this and we're going to win. Is he right? He may be right, 
but there seems to be no appetite for that in, in any Western capital at the moment. I, it's been interesting listening to all of these military experts, military strategists in the last couple of days. The word that keeps being thrown around about these F-16s and these tanks is that they're game changers. Mm. So first it was the tanks, but that wasn't enough. Now it's the F-16s, they're the game changer. And I, I just wonder whether that's ultimately what shifts a war like this, is just pumping new types of material and technology into it when you are inherently limited by the size of the Ukrainian military, um, the, 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 the whole set of dynamics around the winter coming to an end, the kind of endless supply of, of both weapons and boots on the ground that Russia seems to be able to throw at this. It, it seems there's a lot of very simplistic thinking around if you just inject the right stuff into this, that ultimately changes it. And I think that's part of the reason why a lot of the neighboring countries are saying the thing that actually changes this is Western capitals being willing to put their own boots on the ground, that until they invest completely in this war, you're not going to see the game shifted um, in, in the way that's been claimed at the moment. I mean, that frustration, I think, does exist in some quarters, Alex, that that is obviously, certainly as things currently stand, a completely uh, impermissible scenario. I, I have heard one or two informed voices suggest that if, if NATO did get into this properly, this probably wouldn't take them all that long. But as long as that's not possible... Um, <laughs> Do you sense that there will just continue to be those escalations, though? Because Lithuania's president was making the point, we have already crossed so many red lines. There weren't going to be tanks. There weren't going to be long-range missiles. Uh, Germany initially just, I think, wanted to send, you know, literally sticking plasters and helmets. And now look where we are. Um, the F-16 thing, I just wanted to pick up on that. Is it possible that there's some sort of shadow play going on here akin to what went on with the tanks? Whereas everybody, I don't know how how deliberate or how orchestrated it was that everybody seemed to nudge the tank's decision one along until somebody made it in a way that they could say, well, we didn't really make it, you guys did. And with the F-16s, Biden has ruled it out, but is that a nudge and a wink to Poland, which has already suggested that they might send theirs? Well, I mean, you know, who knows what's going on here? I think there's, you know, rather than seeing it necessarily as a grand conspiracy, I think a lot of people are hedging, I mean, to be honest. And I think that's oh, there's an amount of pass the parcel going on. Yeah, I, think, I mean, I think, it's, and everybody's sort of trying to work out where everybody else is on this issue. I mean, and I also would say that, as Phil made the point, but I think it's really worth underlining that I'm pretty, you know, I find it quite spurious, the idea that, like, this is the magic key, you know, mm. if we get the F-16s, boom, it's over, Vlad, you know, like that it's, I don't think it's that simple. And I mean, I think certainly as somebody who's, you know, a historian who's looked an awful lot of Cold War uh, battles with clearly far superior American military equipment on one side and not on the other, um, it absolutely does not always win the day in a simplistic manner. It really doesn't. It's, you know, wars are really complicated and there's a lot of factors going on. Um, I also think really in, you know, there's there's other factors going on that people will hope will change the situation. There's certainly been a BDI from the West on um, Vladimir Putin's health mm. for a long time, you know, and what's going on with that. Um, you know, so... You know, one. I'm sure there's plenty of people just hoping that it'll fall off his perch in a convenient manner, and perhaps the situation will resolve itself. 
Well, we will doubtless have plentiful, uh, rather depressingly, opportunity to return to that subject, but let us now consider papal peregrinations. Pope Francis is undertaking his fifth visit to Africa, dropping pointedly in on two of the continent's more fragile and or volatile countries, the Democratic Republic of Congo and South Sudan. His Holiness will be suggesting that the denizens thereof think about giving peace and reconciliation a crack, and by way of demonstration will be joined in predominantly Christian South Sudan by the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Church of Scotland. Um, Phil, this probably can't hurt the Pope visiting the Congo, but how seriously is he going to be taken? I mean, he will get a crowd. There are a great many Catholics in in DRC, but does he have much actual influence? I don't think so. He'll have a good week. I I think he'll... Mm undoubtedly give a message at at tomorrow's massive mass uh, in Kinshasa that is redolent with language of peace and reconciliation. And he's been trailing that speech for three, four days. He he, he gave a press conference just on departure from the Vatican on Sunday where he said, the Congo River has historically flowed with blood. Maybe this is a week when we can turn that towards justice and reconciliation. So he's he's making some fairly big statements, but Mm. he's, he's going to be confronted with a really trenchant reality, which is a conflict in the east of the country that's been ongoing for 35 years with a patchwork of rebel groups and countries in the region that are involved. You're not going to solve that with a, a, a few papal speeches in, in one week. I think the one thing he can do is, is put a bit of pressure on the Congolese president, Shishikedi, to get serious about these peace talks. Um, there were supposed to be peace talks in Qatar uh, between the Rwandan and the Congolese governments. Shishikedi didn't turn up. Um, I suspect that Pope Francis will put a bit of a shot across his bowels and say that the Congolese government have to get more serious about this regional peace process. The other part, I think, of of the Pope's visit um, will be re-energising the Catholic Church towards a peace mission. The Catholic Mm. Church does have legitimacy in Congo in a way that very few institutions do, but even then, a range of bishops and other uh, Catholic actors are not going to suddenly quell the violence. So it'll be a a long-term piecemeal effect, I think, of the Pope's visit this week. I I just want to follow up on something there, Phil. Phil, which is about the the, the diplomatic uh, potence that the Pope wields in Africa, because he has done, uh, along with, in fact, the Archbishop of Canterbury and the moderator of the Church of Scotland, a bit of arm-twisting and head-banging in South Sudan before. Um, Salva Kiir and Riek Machar were both summoned to the Vatican in 2019 and, and fairly briskly instructed to knock it off. So so people do people do listen to him. They do. He, he definitely has convening power. Mm. Um but I think if you looked at South Sudan the last three years, um, the dynamics within the ruling party, the SPLA, and the larger conflict situation in South Sudan hasn't actually changed that much. Um, Pope Francis did something similar in Central African Republic two years ago, and then he went to Mozambique. We've we've seen these sorts of visits before. That they, they have a, an immediate effect. You sometimes even see an immediate cessation to hostilities that m- most rebel groups and government actors in Congo will be busy watching their TV screens this week, obviously <laughs> captured by Unfortunately, I suspect the bullets will start flying again on the weekend. So so the question is, you know, and ultimately it's up to local actors. Local actors have to take the momentum out of a visit this week and then say, okay, what do we do about that? What do we do with his message? What do we do with the convenings uh, that he's been involved in? What momentum can we give it? But on its own, uh, this kind of visit won't be enough. Um, Alex, in general, what have you made as of Francis, rather, as a papal diplomat? He does seem, to me at least, to actually enjoy the role, which is his predecessor, uh, seemed less enthused about. But, I mean, we've seen, for example, Francis become the first pope to visit Iraq, which was a a huge, huge deal. 
I sort of think this is the strongest part in many ways of the role that he can play. I mean, possibly mm. especially because he does come from this uh, Latin American background rooted in liberation theology and so on himself. He's, you know, he's actually quite good at this, I think. And I mean, I absolutely accept what Phil said, that in no way should we expect the Pope by himself to resolve any of these conflicts. That would obviously be, you know, really far too big an ask. And, you know, moral pressure doesn't generally resolve these sort of con- conflicts, especially not from the outside in a, in a simplistic way. But on the other hand, if you think about what should a Pope be doing in the 21st century, I think going around with a message of peace and reconciliation is probably pretty high Mm. on the list. And I mean, I would agree with you. I think Francis has proved quite good at it, actually, in terms of at least in the limit of success that are possible. Um, uh, So, so, you know, I'm pleased to see him do this. I think it is probably what a Pope should be doing, if you know what I mean. I mean, I'm not a Catholic, so uh, Catholics may have a different opinion, but I think it's, it's pretty... It's pretty positive. Well, on that subject, Phil, how, how much of this visit, though, is frankly uh, drumming up business? Uh, Catholicism is waning in Europe. It is doing the precise opposite in Africa. It's it's kind of the future of the Catholic Church, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that, that's undoubtedly the other objective here. It's, it, it is a domestic one. He's trying to keep his own flock uh, intact. And, and Francis, I think, has gone a long way down that road as well. He, he started to address some of the church's own historical crimes. Um, He's been very apologetic and asked for forgiveness for various Catholic atrocities, involvement in colonialism, um, issues around contraception, stigmatisation of people with HIV and AIDS. He's he's adopted the kind of humble tone in most of his international visits uh, that also has an eye on the future of the church. And Mm. in order for this institution to last, it finally has to come to grips with much of the damage that it's done historically. And I think him more than almost all of his predecessors has has really grasped that, that particular part of the mission. Uh, just finally on this, Alex, and, and not to wish uh, ill on His Holiness, may it be a long time before he is recalled to barracks, etc., but, but he is 86. Is there going to be enormous, perhaps even irresistible clamour for a South American Pope to be followed by an African one? Well, last time when he was appointed, there was talk of an African Pope or an Asian Pope. Um, There have, of course, fact fans, been three African Popes. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you want to go back to uh, what I'm sure we're not allowed to call the Dark Ages anymore, um, but, you know, certainly quite early on, um, all from sort of North Africa. Mm -hmm. Uh, So it wouldn't be the first in history, but it would certainly be the first in modern history. Um, I mean, of course, of course it will go this way. And, you know, as you say, you know, he's come from Latin America, that was already a kind of move outside the sort of European mm-hmm. uh, heartland, the traditional uh, kind of pool. Yes, I think we will certainly see in the future African and Asian popes. Um, well, it, it, it's not that long ago that a Polish or a German pope seemed like a leap into the unknown. Absolutely. So, you know, so I'm sure we will see that um, at some point, as you say, without wishing any unfortunate instance on anyone. Well, now, British people enjoy thinking of themselves as superior to Americans, and that's an easy judgment for an Australian to make, as we enjoy thinking ourselves superior to both. One of the reasons British people esteem themselves against their American cousins is that the British are modest, decorous and self-deprecating, whereas the Americans are loud, arrogant and prone to boasting. However, according to a space-filling article in one of the morning papers padded out with quotes from dubiously credentialed experts, the Americans are doing the smart thing and British people should blow their own trumpets much louder. Um, Alex, at which we have to defer to you, obviously, it's it's very hard for such quiet and humble people as Australians uh, (laughs) to, to... 
to judge uh, on this. So, so what what do you think? Do do English people have, or rather, overdo the whole endearing, self-deprecating shtick? No, <laughs> it's one of our redeeming features. <laughs> you're you're boasting about your self-deprecation. Yes, I am. I'm I'm brilliant at it. No, no, I'm not. I I, I think. Uh, but I do think actually, I mean, I I like it a lot, and I do. Find, it's one of the big, big cultural differences when you go and spend mm. time in the states is definitely that. And you know, somebody in the article did say that when she moved from the US to Britain, she had to really dial it down because Brits just cannot hear you talk about your achievements. Funnily enough, actually, I think it sort of goes over a bit easier with Australians, which is I think to do with not just saying this to flatter you both, but it's the sense of humour aspect mm. rather than the complete sincerity. Is is appreciated, shall we say, in Britain? That that goes across a bit better. But I mean, on the other hand, I would say that there are parts of that sort of American extreme confidence and sincerity that are that are great, and that actually we could learn from. I mean, I definitely learned when I, you know, first started going to the states and, and wrote my first book. Um, you know, it, I remember the publishers would sort of come to you and say, "I loved your book in this incredibly mm. sincere way." Look, you know, I know as a British person, you oh. God, terrible piece of nonsense. Oh, I just wrote five seconds. <laughs> At which point they'd be very upset because, of course, they were invested in it. So you had to learn to look them back in the eye and say very sincerely as well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. And actually, I think that's quite good. The sort of mm. learning to accept some positivity and take compliments can, can actually be quite positive. But if we're really going to get to the sort of, you know, unfolding your CV of great achievements at the slightest prompt, I think I think I might slink out the back. I mean, just to follow that up, though, Alex, is, is part of that, and I know this is another generalisation that people make about the British, is it associated with that, I think we can say, a, a certain British reluctance to say the thing that you actually mean and to cloak it in sort of self-abnegation or passive-aggressive euphemism or, like, you know... I. It, did take me far too long of living here to figure it out. But yeah, there is there is no more damning thing that you can hear as a journalist from your editor than, well, this is an interesting idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, I mean, there's so many pitfalls, um, you know, divided by a common language. What can we say? <laughs> because it's all in the intonation and the implication, which is, which is incredibly difficult for anyone who isn't completely used to the milieu. But on the other hand, I think, I don't know, personally, I love the understatement and the drive and I would fight to preserve at least a bit of it. See, Phil, I, uh, and possibly this is uh, speaking as an Australian and an outsider to both Britain and the United States, I kind of enjoy both of those things. I, I, I do like the sort of chronic self-effacement of the British, but I actually do really enjoy the just absolutely dauntless swagger of the Americans when you run across I it. I mean, th- this is the classic Australian identity, isn't it? It's kind of wedged between the, the, <laughs> these two historical powers, so we, we kind of end up enjoying a bit of a hybrid. I mean, the, the only thing I would say about the sort of notion of, of British self-deprecation is y- you should listen to Brits in their former colonies, as, as I have done. <laughs> and that's where you start to see that there are layers to the British identity around these things. So uh, British business people and diplomats in Kenya, and with a very deliberate pronunciation of that word, um, or Nigeria or Gold Coast, as some of them still will call Ghana, we, we might start to see that there's, a, that there's a slightly different mentality at play. So I think where these attitudes are being expressed might uh, might also tell us a lot. But Alex, is, is there a way then that you can just sort of float your accomplishments, which in your case are considerable, without coming across as overly cocky? If, if you're trying to get across that, look, I do actually know what I'm talking about, I have written several books, etc., 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 available in all good stores, um, h- how do you go about doing it? 
Well, I think, and actually this was a piece of advice in the article that I think is slightly worth mm. kind of paying some attention to, is, is it relevant to the conversation? Mm. I think that's quite crucial, isn't it? So, you know, if somebody says... Uh, well, you know, um, I have a great interest in the Australian military, for instance, then I'm sure you'd say, well, I, Andrew Muller, have a great interest also, <laughs> you know, perhaps know a little about this. Um, but if, if it's sort of completely coming out of nowhere, then I think that's when it really starts to feel like bragging. If it really is just sort of the conversation, it starts to be a bit overwhelming. And, and I think also with that, it's leaving space for other people in the conversation. Mm. So, you know, it's sort of, I think it's a, all. It's quite tricky how you do it. But I mean, there probably are ways to do it that wouldn't um, make me come out in hives. And, and Phil, what, what, what about you? Do you sort of bowl into every conversation announcing that your book about Rwanda is, is better than everybody else's? I, th- I think it's a tougher sell in academia. <laughs> that, that, that kind of thing tends to get you very, very short shrift. But, but even in, in my circles in, in, at academic conferences, there is a particular American bombast that often will go with people making arguments as sort of a default assumption that I will be listened to and my expertise mm. will float. And then sometimes there is the difference reality of your expertise coming up against others' expertise, which uh, which I think some American scholars find quite a, a, a difficult reality. I think some of that, too, also comes from quite an insular culture where m- many American academics, for example, don't necessarily travel that much because mm. they live in such a massive market. They spend all their time speaking to people of a fairly similar mentality. When confronted with something different to that, they sometimes get a reaction that they're, they're not too accustomed to. I'm generalizing terribly here, of course. Uh, but, but no, you're, you're generalizing excellently, Phil. Uh, but but the, the gist of the article, Alex, is that it works for the Americans, that actually being that kind of... I mean, obviously, they've had a fairly recent president who would appear to be the absolute non-parel demonstration of this, that if, if you build yourself up enough, a certain plurality of other people are going to go, OK, fine. Well, this is the whole theory behind ideas like the power of positive thinking, but I'm wary of the limits to that. I think there are limits to it, and perhaps... Since you mentioned a recent president, that might have been a demonstration that there were certain (laughs) limits to his brilliance and genius, um, which perhaps even though he didn't accept, did in fact exist. Um, somewhere along the line. Um, and I think, you know, there are there are limits to that in that way. And I think also there is a flip side to it, which is that you sort of end up, if people perhaps are, you know, very unfortunate in life in various ways, that you end up blaming them for not being confident mm. and self-promoting enough, which I think is actually really quite dangerous because, in fact, there's lots of factors that hold people back and it's not just all in your bombast and how you put yourself forward in this world. So, you know, I think we have to be a bit careful around it. But, yeah, I would certainly say that, I mean, since we were talking about Brexit earlier, there is nothing that makes me feel more European than a trip to the States. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and, and I think, uh, to, to wind this up, the, the Australian approach, Phil, is... You're usually looking for when someone else starts big noting themselves, it's not so much wanting to compete with their big noting as looking for where they've left themselves vulnerable. And and one thinks, it's possibly an apocryphal story, but let's go with it, uh, of the late Australian media tycoon Kerry Packer, uh, one of his outings to the casino uh, in Las Vegas, being accosted by some local big hat who introduced himself and said, you know, my name's Texas J. Hamburger III or whatever it is. Um, I'm worth a billion dollars. Legend insists that Packer shook the man's hand and said, I'll toss you for it. (laughs) 
<laughs> Alex von Tunzelman and Phil Clark, thank you both very much for joining us. Finally on today's show, Darren Aronofsky's new film, The Whale, has been nominated for three Oscars and four BAFTAs. It tells the story of a reclusive English teacher with severe obesity who attempts to reconnect with his daughter. The film marks the return of Brendan Fraser, who plays the main role. The Whale was written by Samuel Hunter and is based on his own play, a screenplay which earned a Best Adapted Screenplay nomination at the BAFTAs. Samuel speaks with Monocle's Fernando Augusto Pacheco about the film and how personal the story is for him. Yeah, I wrote the play quite a while ago now. I, I, I first started writing it around 2009. And um, I was living in New York and just trying desperately to find my footing as an off-Broadway playwright. I'd seen like maybe one or two of my plays produced in New York, but just in very small theaters. Uh, and I was teaching essay writing, like Charlie does in the movie, at a university, public university in New Jersey. And I was struggling to connect with my students, and, and at a certain point, like Charlie does in the film, I became kind of desperate and uh, just begged them to write something honest. And so one of my students wrote me a line that ended up in the play and the movie, uh, which was, I think I need to accept that my life isn't going to be very exciting. And so then that just got me interested in writing a play about an expository uh, writing teacher, an essay writing teacher, um, which is kind of an odd place to start, but uh, I... Uh, eventually started to put some more personal stuff on the line. Um, you know, I grew up in the town where Charlie lives in, in North Idaho, uh, in the Pacific Northwest of the U.S. Uh, and I had an experience going to a very religious school where I was outed uh, and had to leave. And for many years after that, I self-medicated with food. Uh, and, you know, it's it, Charlie's story is not my exact story. I think like most of my plays, it's kind of an act of auto fiction where I put elements of myself and but fictionalize them. Uh, but it felt very personal in that way. Um, so, yeah, and it was finally produced in New York in 2012. And that's where Darren saw it and then contacted. How was the adaptation to it? Because, I mean, to be honest, for those who know uh, about the play, you know, it, sometimes it's a bit hard to imagine how it would look like uh, in a film. Were there many challenges in, in this topic? Well, I think, you know, I, I've written quite a few plays uh, over the years. You know, The Whale was probably 12, 13 plays ago. And I think if I were to adapt another one of my plays into a film, you know, I think I would approach it in that more traditional way of, like, opening it up, like adding characters, adding locations, adding scenes, maybe flashbacks. But this play specifically, I mean, really the fundamental experience of this story is being in this place with this person in this two bedroom apartment with this man who can't leave. Uh, and, and I and so like in the beginning, you know, I, I think Darren and I both expected the story to open up, add characters, add locations. But the moment I started, you know, tossing that around in my brain i was just like i don't know what this is anymore i mean like i once we leave the apartment it just kind of felt like you know the air got let out of the balloon it was just like um uh so you know early on in our discussions darren and i agreed like let's keep it in the two-bedroom apartment but obviously that presented a host of challenges you know because uh but but i also knew like i i watched darren's movies religiously over the years and i knew if there was one person who could make a two-bedroom apartment visually interesting it was darren Uh, but then there was a lot of, you know, like, what lines can we translate into visual storytelling? You know, like, what moments, what dramatic moments can we tell without words? You know, I added, uh, you know, a second bedroom to the apartment, which doesn't seem very meaningful. But when we arrived there, we realized that it's this kind of sealed off second bedroom that is 
kind of the archaeology of his past with his uh, with his lover who had since passed away. And so visually, that kind of tells the, st the story that is told in the play in a monologue. So there was a lot of stuff like that throughout the years. And it was a long process. You know, this was 10 years of, of not constant conversation, but like, you know, every, you know, there's a lot of drafts, a lot, a lot of drafts. Why'd you gain all that weight? Someone close to me passed away and it had an effect on me. You haven't seen her since she was eight years old and you're going to reconnect with her? Sorry. I don't like this. This isn't a good idea. I'm sorry. You say you're sorry one more time, I will shove a knife right into you, I swear to God. Go ahead. What's it going to do? My internal organs are two feet in at least. And so another thing I would like to, to mention, because, you know, it's not just about, you know, uh, being prized by critics or Oscar nominations, but actually the way it's doing quite well at the box office, you know, uh, yeah. I, I was reading is really maintaining uh, and I see more and more people interested. Uh, how, how do you feel actually seeing because there, there is clearly a big market and, and of course the story can be dark at times and sad. But as I said, there's the humanity and and clearly there is a big appeal, uh, the film. I mean, I think it's. I think it's a couple things. I think. Um, I mean, of course, there's Brendan, and I and I think like you know both his performance, which is just absolutely monumental, but also the fact that there is so much love for that man. I mean, love that I knew that that there was a lot of affection for him, but I had no idea how many childhoods he crafted. You know what I mean? Like through his through his movies, um, and uh, and then I think it was just kind of he was the right man for the right role. I mean, this is a role that I've seen. It's been produced all over the, all over the world at this point over the last 10 years, you know, dozens and dozens, if not hundreds of productions at this point. And so, you know, I've seen it in, uh, you know, I've seen it in Dallas. I've seen it in New York. I've seen it in small theaters and small towns. I mean, I, and I, and I know that there, that this is not just a story for, people in New York and LA. This is not just a story for people of affluence. I think that this is like, uh, it's a very human story that I think a lot of people can relate to on many different levels. Uh, because I think a lot of us have somebody in our life who's like Charlie, and I'm not saying, you know, somebody suffering from the exact same things that Charlie is suffering from. I mean, obesity is just one aspect of Charlie's life. You know, there's so much more else that's going on. And I think grief, people, yeah. grief loss, hope. And this is the thing is I think that I, I, another thing I think people are really connecting with is I, I think it's a very uncynical story and it's a very uncynical character. And I think cynicism nowadays is kind of the law of the land. You know, it masquerades as sophistication, it masquerades as intelligence. But I think faith in other people and hard-won hope is a much more complicated, much more intellectually uh, rigorous thing to have. And I, and I think that the, the, the play in the movie is ultimately a call for that kind of, uh, that lack of cynicism and that hard-won hope. People are amazing. Samuel Hunter speaking to Fernando Augusto Pacheco and The Whale is out now. That is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Alex von Tunzelman and Phil Clark. Today's show was produced by Lillian Fawcett and researched by Andre Nikolai Pamintuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>